Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power. I'm Nick Cole. And I'm Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today's subject is the talent trade, the way in which nation states seek out the most able people in the world and try to bring them into their country as assets. And we want to try and pull out from this issue some of the dynamics of international reputation and countries doing good or otherwise in the world that might be floating beneath the surface. So you'll find, I think, or we find in this conversation that a number of themes we've already addressed in this podcast uh, come back, uh, not only the importance of migration, but also it intersects with the national stories of a number of countries that we've thought about so far, including the United States, Canada, UK, and a few others too. So the starting point, I think, has to be to ask, which country do we see as the most interested in recruiting talent from overseas? And why is that? So, Simon, the country most interested in finding talent, the, the pulling in talent, any surprise? <laughs> the, the phrasing of it is interesting, Nick, because the country that actually traditionally has attracted most talent isn't necessarily the one that's most interested in attracting it. And that's the United States. Uh, The United States has been the classic number one destination for talented migrants in history. But in many, many points in history, and particularly recently, it seems to have shown itself to be rather indifferent to whether they come or not. And there are other countries, poorer countries, developing countries that are, objectively speaking, much more interested in attracting talent because they need it to build their economies, to build their uh, to build their knowledge base. Um, But it's harder for them to get it. I think it's it's just before we launch in on this fascinating subject, it's worth just commenting for a moment on that interesting euphemism, talent. This is this is the word that gets used, as, as we know, in government circles. And it is a bit of a hypocritical term, because what it actually means is the migrants we want as distinct from the migrants we don't want. In other words, people from other countries, if they've got higher or further education, if they've got transferable skills, if they bring value to our economy and our society, then they're talent. If they don't, then they're not talent, they're untalented. And therefore, we might tolerate them at best, or we might expend quite a lot of energy in trying to persuade them not to come at worst. Right. So really, this is looking for Einstein. Yeah. And right now, the countries that are most actively recruiting, well, I can see how, if you look at the way that migration into Australia works, migration into Canada works. There are special migration privileges awarded to people who are going to contribute to the knowledge economy, for example. And I think the UK's talked about developing that kind of system. But but does the way that talented or especially qualified migrants, does that transfer to the, the reputation of a country as a whole? Or do you think... It, uh, international audiences see a a kind of implicit fluidity in global talent that doesn't necessarily apply to the wider behavior of the country. 
Well, certainly from the point of view of the talented individuals themselves, as they're making that crucial decision about where they go and study or where they go and work, they are thinking very much, perhaps somewhat subconsciously, nonetheless, they're driven very much by choices about their, their own image. They're asking themselves whether a spell spent in a given country is going to add to their own personal brand equity. What's it going to look like on the CV? So if my education was finished off in the US, how does that make me look? How does that add equity to my personal brand and increase my value to another destination at some later point in my life? And so the images of the country, the image of the country that you choose to go to plays a very important role in the decision. It may well be that you can get the highest quality education, the best qualifications at the lowest price with the highest quality of living somewhere other than the US these days. And yet people will very often still choose the US just because the, uh, the optics are good. And people will glance at your CV and say, ooh, you worked in the US or ooh, you studied in the US. And that's five extra points on your own on your own CV. So to, to pretend that image has nothing to do with this is absurd. It's far more about image than it really should be. But that's just the way that these things work. And of course, the countries play on this. The UK, having gone to enormous lengths in recent years to try and keep out the migrants it thinks it doesn't want, has now realized that it's got to work four times harder to try and get the migrants that it does want. And it's of course, uh, playing on a lot of very traditional themes, saying to people, you know, this is the summit of your career to go to the UK. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. But do you think that location within these poll countries, these recruiting countries, makes a difference? So is there more prestige in working on the east coast of the United States than in Iowa or Kansas? Depends who you're talking to. I, I think if, if it's somebody who knows the country reasonably well and they know the difference between Princeton and, and Oklahoma, then of course it makes a difference. But generally speaking, the further away you go from a, from a given country, the, the, the less people know about it and the less they're likely to distinguish. There are, of course, cities, regions and indeed universities that have got global brands attached to them. And they will always be magic words, whoever you're speaking to. So, you know, I studied at Stanford, I studied at Oxford, or I worked in New York, I worked in Berlin. These are powerful names to bandy around, whether or not people know anything about American or, uh, or, or German geography. And again, it, it emphasizes, it underlines the, the value that it gives to a nation if it's uh, cities and its subnational regions are world famous for something or other because it adds to their magnetism just immeasurably. So, you know, an individual right now who is part of this international talent trade mm. would be Elon Musk, who can claim connection to South Africa, to Canada, and to the United States mm. simultaneously. But probably the country that is most associated with him right now is, so if you think whose soft power does he contribute to, it would be to the soft power of the United States. It's kind of like an anecdotal connection to South Africa and, and Canada seems like his insurance policy. Yes. And, and I think it has long been so with the US. It's a planet that is so large that it sucks almost everything into its orbit. 
And it's not just true of, of, of business talent, it's also true of entertainment talent. If you, if you look at actors, for example, or other performers who come from other parts of the world, if they make it big in America, they become American. So I don't know, I'm just thinking of random names, Russell Crowe. You, you, could, you could think of almost, almost any major Australian or Canadian movie or singing star after a few years in the States where they've made it big in the States, most people therefore, they've su they're sucked into the, to the orbit of brand America and effectively become Americans. And as you say, their, their country of origin is a sort of anecdote. It's a little, a little extra enrichment on top of the fact fundamentally they're American. But that's also the story of American migration. As we know, it's the melting pot. And whenever people have wanted to come to America, they have wanted to become Americans and to discard their, their own origin myth. A few, a few generations later, they often seem to miss it. And then they try to get it back again, which is why you see, for example, the singer Madonna used to walk around wearing um, wearing a t-shirt saying proud to be Italian oh, yes. and she can't even pronounce her own surname in a way that most Italians would recognize yes well then she discovered Britain and yes. started wearing tweed and speaking yes. with a mockney yes. accent which was quite funny but... well, playing playing with identity isn't it so yes. you know how, how long before the the children or the grandchildren of Arnold Schwarzenegger feel it's okay to walk around saying proud to be Austrian but it, it, it's, yes. it's often a thing isn't it and those those first migrants often work very hard to detach themselves from any association with the with the country of origin because they're perceived to have uh, climbed yes. up the, the ladder uh, a rung or two. But then just saying, I am American, I belong to a group of 350 million people is kind of too big a tribe for most people. So they want to also belong to a smaller tribe, a sub-tribe, where there's a real sense of shared identity. And that's when they start rediscovering the, the, the origins of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. So if you're advising a country, would you as a policy advisor encourage international talent recruitment? Was this something you thought Chile should do? Or... Well, they all want to do it anyway. It makes no difference whether I encourage them or not. I think it's generally a good thing. I'm sure we both agree on that, that the mobility of talent, since we're calling it that, is a good thing. It stirs up the human gene pool. It blurs the lines between nations which are otherwise such fruitful sources of, of conflict, and it mixes up the good ideas. It spreads them around. So it's definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of trying to create a better planet, I feel, I feel no compunction at all in encouraging countries to want to attract more talent, but also to, also to let it go. Because what you really can't do is try to attract other people to your country and then make it difficult for your own people to move abroad if they want to. And both directions are useful. Of course, they are. We were, we were speaking earlier, weren't we, about um, how so often we talk about the diasporas of certain countries. And in this podcast, we've spoken about the, the Scots and the Irish and how they end up generally occupying fairly high level positions around the world and how that benefits the image of Scotland and Ireland. And very often these people end up in the United States because it's the number one destination. And yet we so seldom talk about American talent moving overseas. Well, this was an interesting, this is an interesting thing. And uh, countries that are used to conceptualizing themselves as diaspora countries or a country in relationship to a diaspora, they assume that everybody thinks that way. And this was brought home to me when I visited Armenia. 
and I asked the Armenians, so what would you like to know about American mm. public diplomacy? And the first question they asked was, how does the United States manage its relationship with its diaspora? And, and I have to say that the United States does not conceptualize of itself as having a diaspora. Americans are aware that there are people born in the United States who choose to live overseas, but they assume that at some point those people are going to want to come back. You know, the United States is one of the ways in which it's unique is it's maybe the only empire in the history of the world so far where people haven't wanted to live or haven't had to live in the places that they, for want of a better term, conquer or coordinate. The United States is a kind of perfection in its own ideology, so you, you do not sever, sever ties to that place. I'm not sure I entirely agree with the characterization that, that it has no individuals based overseas, because, uh, of course, at any given moment, there are thousands upon thousands of American executives busily running the overseas affiliates and subsidiaries. Yes, but they're assumed to be temporarily overseas. Absolutely. That's, that's a different point. And, and the idea of an American diaspora may be absurd. But if you then start to think about, well, what about communities from the United States who have reason to go overseas? then you get onto something. And we could talk about the African-American yeah. diaspora, people who, who came from the United States who have, for reasons of racism, uh, to live in Europe, for example, or who have made lives uh, elsewhere. I think Paris was a particularly important destination for African-Americans in the 20th century, where you have African-American artists, uh, Josephine Baker, for example, James Baldwin, living overseas, prospering because they're beyond American, American racism and then being able to re-import themselves or their, their contribution to culture, then returning to the United States. One is almost tempted to call them refugees rather than talent. Yeah, or, or emigres. Um, but another example would be how musicians who were thought unremarkable in the United States or who were seen as having had their day were able to work in the UK and, you know, either have a career or revive their career. And, and working internationally certainly helped, for example, Tina Turner. Yeah. You know, you hear Tina Turner talk about the UK and she just loves it. She loves British fans. She loves the opportunity that she had to still be herself and to be beyond the limits of the American music industry. Mm. The pigeonholing in the American music industry was, was very constraining. And then there were also Americans who were part of a radical diaspora who had mm. to live overseas because of uh, McCarthyism. And not all of those people returned or the sure. people who moved to Canada because of the draft during the Vietnam War. There's still a generation of American originating college professors working in, working in Canada, coming to the end of their careers now, but um, that's been part of people's stories. Yes. But going back for a moment to that very interesting question of why that phrase, the American diaspora, sounds so odd, I think there's a reason for this that is connected with the fact that, as I've often observed, almost all of us, wherever we come from in the world, we have a very, very clear sense in our minds of a, of a, a sort of natural hierarchy of nations. We all have a clear sense about where our own nation is in the general pecking order. 
of respectability or profile or, or, or just sort of general admirability. And it's not explicit. We, we very seldom, if ever, talk about it, but it's very clearly there and you can test for it. And everybody has, as I say, this very clear ranking in their minds. And the USA, in the view of its own citizens and in the view of many citizens of other countries, is at the top of the pile. Now, if being a member of a diaspora is almost by definition about going abroad to seek your fortune, to build a better life, to have a better quality of life, obviously somebody who comes from the top country, the number one country, by definition, must be going downhill if they go anywhere else. They must be going to look for, of course, we've spoken about some exceptions just now, generally speaking, the, the broad subconscious assumption is that they're doing it because they have to or because it's better paid, but not because they're looking for a better quality of life. And therefore, that's why the, the tag diaspora doesn't seem to work in the case of the US, because who's going abroad from the US to look for a better life? By definition, you'd be looking for a worse life if you left the US. I'm exaggerating for effect, but you, you, you know what I mean. Whereas almost any other country, indeed any other country, because it comes from lower down in the hierarchy, people can move up. If you're American, there's nowhere to move up to, or at least that's the deeply rooted belief, changing as we watch it. But then if we have the United States as the number one destination, I think we also should talk about regional destinations. For example, mm -hmm. in Africa, South Africa has been a regional destination for, for a long time. You mm -hmm. can see how from Central Asia, people grad gravitate towards Russia still, Russia mm -hmm. for education, Russia for all kinds of opportunities. Yeah. So there are regional pull countries, uh, if you like. And, and then we see global pull countries too. And a thing that I think is curious right now is that China is renegotiating its relationship with its diasporans with and with you know Chinese people of, of talent there, there, there's this moment in the wake of the Chinese Revolution in the mid 50s where Cho and Lai says basically he gives Chinese people living outside the country permission to be citizens fully of the place where they are located in the first instance mm. and than Chinese in the second instance. So not making a major demand on people's, for people's first loyalty. But I think now that's starting to come into question and you're seeing more of a, an expectation that people who have a diasporic connection to China will say the right thing, will be supportive of Chinese policy. And the prize for this is the adulation of the quarter of the planet who live in mainland China. Hmm. And it's been very interesting to see how particular artists, for example, who were born in China or have a strong connection to China, their, their position to, the, to mainland China is moot and being discussed and being negotiated in, 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 in Chinese media. So I, I, basically that's an issue to watch. An yes. interesting thing to see as it takes shape. Will we see in the future China as a destination for talent? Mm. Well, that's already happening. I think the head of HSBC is, I believe, a person of Indian origin who has been recruited to, to work in Shanghai. And yes. Well, HSBC have a long tradition of, of hiring people from all over the English-speaking world to run its office. It's hardly a, a Chinese 
enterprise. It's part of this international market, isn't it? Yeah. It's difficult to imagine a foreigner heading a Chinese company. I mean, could you imagine Huawei, for example, hiring a Canadian business? But but maybe that is a, a moment in the evolution of an empire or a civilization when you're able to integrate people not of origin in your country into the highest ranks of your corporate life. Yes, that possibility in the case of China seems very far off because, you know, truly we're looking at competing systems and competing competing worldviews and competing ideologies these days. And the idea that a Chinese company would would tolerate having somebody from the other side heading one of their companies seems like a very a very remote possibility. But um, I, I was reminded uh, of the recent moments in history where Americans traveling abroad uh, famously started putting maple leaf stickers on their backpacks uh, in order to prevent being bullied at times when the United States was particularly unpopular. One wonders if at the moment when China is very unpopular as a result of, as we've seen in the, the latest Nation Pans Index, as a result of the association with the pandemic and all the rest of it, whether we'll see Chinese students and tourists traveling around with Taiwanese or Hong Kong stickers on their backpacks. Yeah, that, that's harder to imagine. Maybe uh, I, I wonder if the ideal point of origin is at the moment is South Korea, if that's sort of the least controversial place to be to be from. Uh, and then South Korea has brought in international international talent, corporations into the academic life. Mm. But I think it's I think it's hard to make that. And they put all sorts of demands on international talent working in their sphere. And, and you know, maybe this is one of the things that then becomes a, a point of comparison. How easy is it to be part of a cosmopolitan talent community in a place. Mm. Switzerland seems to make it quite easy at some level, though you wonder how far are you actually able to penetrate into Swiss society? Well, the language issue is, of course, fundamental here. And one one of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason why Germany, for example, otherwise a very desirable destination for talent, persists in lagging behind, for example, the UK, Canada, Australia, and so forth, is because the perception, increasingly, it is more a perception than a reality. You're going to have to learn to speak German if you move, which is a big barrier. I think uh, people perform this uh, calculation in their minds and they think, well, if I had to go and work in Germany and I'd have to learn German to do it, that's a major investment of time and effort and one that would involve probably staying there for most of the rest of your career to justify the investment. In full disclosure, Simon, there was a certain country that would have rather liked you to have opened up shop there. Would you have been expected to learn their language or did that not not come up in the negotiation? I've forgotten which country we're talking about. Oh, is this Denmark? Yes, yes. Yes, no, well, at one, at one stage, the, the, the Danes were quite keen to have me open up shop in, in Copenhagen. No, there was absolutely no mention of me needing to speak Danish at all. But that's because, uh, as we know, in Scandinavia, Everybody is um, aggressively bilingual, and it's not the case in, in in Germany. And I think people are very aware of these of these subtle differences, and they they do make a difference. And that's why some countries, for example, the United Kingdom, which in in many ways is rather less attractive than people imagine in reality, and yet it's always up there in the in the cluster at the top, just because of English, which is the 
operating system of globalization is the is the, is the national language. Bhutan, I always think, have benefited rather from the fact that English is the language of instruction in their schools, and it always gives gave me a, a bit of a surprise in the remote villages in in Bhutan to find that almost anybody I I spoke to spoke really very good English. It's not what you expect at all. Moving forward with this, do you think that we're going to see a more mobility of talent, people having loyalties to, having connections to multiple countries in the course of a career? Uh, And will countries be increasingly judged by how easy it is to prosper as a high flyer in a particular place? It's it's easy, particularly at this point in history, to see how there could be temporary setbacks to the development of that pattern, the pandemic being a, a notorious example. But I think in the longer term, it can only increase. And of any of our listeners who haven't read our excellent friend Parag Khanna's work on digital nomads and uh, mobile mm-hmm. populations should really do so because he knows far more about that certainly than I do. And he writes very well on the topic. I think that the number of people who do actually live and work abroad is, of course, tiny. Um, It's a tiny, tiny percentage of the world's population. And here in the West, we can sometimes be forgiven for imagining that the whole world is in motion, but it's it's really very marginal indeed. And I think that what we're looking forward to in the very near future, in fact, it's already happening, is a gigantic increase in the number of people going to live and work in other countries as a result of running from climate change. And the conflict and the shortage of resources that results from that. So uh, yes, there'll be talent and the talent will be a very, very thin layer of jelly or jam, depending on your nationality, spread over the top. The thousands or even over the years, tens of thousands of migrants that we see braving the waters of the Mediterranean to get from Africa to Europe, that's a tiny, tiny aperitif of the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, that climate change is going to be producing in the coming years. But perhaps the experience of the this talented top layer can be used to encourage the fair treatment of the majority and to open doors and diversify the management and elite in a receiving countries. Yes, to blaze the trap. Uh, and also to convince the host population that these are that, that there is a contribution to be made. Absolutely. And with super talented, highly educated people, the the payoff is almost in- instantaneous. Mm. You bring them in, they're already producing, they're already at the top of their career, mm. but the investment or the payoff you get from bringing in somebody who is a a, a, a child, a teenager, just beginning their their, their life, uh, that in time will be will be tremendous. Yes, and that's what we need to see embraced going forward. And so, so you know, maybe this 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 top layer, this talent trade, can become the uh, the, the gateway to a wider appreciation of diversity and cosmopolitanism. Yes, absolutely right. And, and one, of the, one of the things I've often recommended to, to governments is that they try to speed that process up deliberately. So if they're very interested in, in attracting or recruiting highly educated, talented people from certain countries, what I've often said to them is, by all means, do that. But don't just stick purely with the highly educated top talent. Make sure that for every, for every PhD you're bringing in from Sri Lanka, 
for example, you're also bringing in a hundred people from lower down the socioeconomic the socioeconomic spectrum because they're of value to your society as well as well. They're useful, and if they have, as an example, as an informal diplomat, the highly talented one who came first, as you yourself just said, they blaze a trail for them, and they can play a very important role in driving the acceptance of those less educated or less experienced people. So I think we should always be thinking in terms of spreading the benefit of, of immigration. Yes, by all means, we can go for those, uh, those high value individuals, but let's always remember that there are many, many other, more, other people who would benefit from the same journey and we should be encouraging them to come as well. I'd like to put a tax on every country on earth that says for every migrant you accept with a PhD, you are obliged to accept 10 others who don't have a PhD. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People Places Power. I'm still Nick Cull. And I'm still Simon Anhog. <laughs>